Welcome to the Aiken Partners Legal Podcast Series. Today, Deb Andronaco and Sam Merrilees from our Owners Corporation team join Shane Crimmins from Rogers Reedy to talk about dysfunctional OCs. This podcast runs for about 30 minutes. Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our next instalment of our Owners Corporation um, webinars. Um, we're sorry for anyone that did want to join us in person today. Um, due to circumstances beyond our control, we've had to move today's uh, session to a webinar only. But thank you for joining us. Um, today's webinar is on dysfunctional owners corporations, um, something that I'm sure um, either as managers, committee members and the like, um, you've come across many, many a time. Um, but something that um, I have certainly found is that quite often um, it's not well understood what sort of process you should follow um, when these issues arise. So we're really excited today to um, hopefully um, give you a little bit of a better insight um, into this area. Um, we have Deb Andronico who will present. She's a senior associate with us in our Owners Corporation team. Um, she is a dedicated Owners Corporation lawyer and does pretty much nothing else but it. Um, and she'll talk um, a, a bit about how the process all works. Sam Merrilees of our office, a lawyer, will also be presenting. Um, he crosses over between both of our litigation teams and our women's corporation teams. Um, and together with Deb, will explain um, the legal issues involved in dealing with dysfunctional owners corporations. We're also really pleased to welcome Shane Kremen today, who's the director of Rogers Reedy. Um, uh, Rogers Reedy is an insolvency and reconstruction business, um, and he deals with a lot of dysfunctional owners corporations, and again, will present this from a very practical perspective. Um, it's not well appreciated a lot of the time, but it's not always the manager that needs to step into these roles. Quite often an insolvency practitioner who can bring a very different skill set um, and a very different outlook on things um, can be the best way of moving forward. So we hope um, you learned something today. Um, and with that, I'm very pleased to welcome Deb. Thanks, Barbara, and thank you all for joining us today. Okay, so Division 4 of Part 11 of the Owners Corporation Act outlines the legal framework in respect of the appointment of an administrator. Uh, first up is Section 173, which provides that an owner's corporation, a lot owner, a creditor of an owner's corporation, or any other person with an interest in the land affected by an owner's corporation may apply to be cap for the appointment of an administrator of that owner's corporation. A BCAT application form, together with an affidavit in support of the application, outlining the events that have occurred and supporting the application for the administrator, must be filed. And in most cases, the tribunal will not randomly source someone to act as an administrator. They will require the applicant to make submissions as to who should be submitted. And as Barbara said, this may not necessarily be another manager. Uh, it will depend on the issue at hand as to who would be appropriate. So how do you determine if your owner's corporation is dysfunctional and needs an administrator? The leading case on this question is the case of McKinnon and Adams, which was filed in the Supreme Court in 2003. The Owners' Corporation Act had not yet come into operation at that time, so the proceeding was filed pursuant to Section 38.6 of the Subdivision Act. In this matter, 
the test posed by His Honour Justice Bongiorno to answer that very question was, to justify the appointment of an administrator, the body corporate concerned must be affected by some incapacity or must be acting so dysfunctionally as to render the provision of appropriate services to unit holders and or care of the common property either non-existent or so beset by the difficulties as to render the body corporate unable to function at what the court considers to be a satisfactory level. There may or may not be financial difficulties or even financial impropriety affecting the body corporate's capacity to function, but there must be some deficiency in its operational capacity sufficient to justify the court's intervention in the interest of some or all of the inequalities. His Honour further stated that the power to appoint the administrator to be ordered in the court, may be ordered in the court's discretion, where the evidence discloses that the body corporate is failing to operate properly in the interest of its members, is being inefficiently or ineffectively managed, or the appointment is necessary to protect the interest of the members. Since the operation of the Owners Court Act in 2006, there have been two further cases reported on this issue. Firstly is the matter of Libransky and Owners Corporation, where the majority of lot owners wanted to issue a proceeding for building defects. However, the um, original owner still kept some of the lots and voted against the special resolution, so therefore the OC could not achieve 75% necessarily issue the proceeding. Taking into consideration the test posed in the McKinnon case, the tribunal concluded that the test is not is the owner's corporation incapable of any action, but rather is the owner's corporation failing to operate properly in the interest of its members. The second case that I'll mention is the matter of owner's corporation in Jewel Homes, Victoria. Again, Jewel Homes retained some rights and voted against the special resolution to issue proceedings for building defects, and so the owners' corporation could not reach the 75%. And in that case, the tribunal noted that it is significant in the McKinnon test that the applicant does not have to demonstrate that there has been any impropriety. It is a question of whether the owners' corporation is unable to function or is failing to operate properly in the interest of its members as a whole. So section 174 comes into play once an application has been filed and provides that an application for the appointment of an administrator once it's been filed, VCAP may make orders to appoint the administrator and to set out the terms and conditions of the appointment. VCAP may also make other orders that it thinks fit. So the case that I've got on the slide for Section 174 is the matter of Boric and Owners Corporation. I actually added, um, acted for the second respondent, Mr. Cussell, in this matter. By way of background, there are four lots in the subdivision with equal lot entitlement and liability. Mr. Boric owns two of the lots and controls 50%. Mr. Cussell and Mr. and Mrs. Powers each own one lot and control the other 50%. This results in a deadlock on almost all decisions of the owners' corporation because the two camps will not agree with each other on most matters. Uh, the owners' corporation served various breach notices on Mr. Cussell for breaching the model rules 
which Mr. Castle addressed to the satisfaction of the owners' corporation and Mrs. Power. Mr. Borrick, on the other hand, was not satisfied and issued an application BCAT against the owners' corporation and Mr. Castle. Relevantly, Mr. Borrick sought that an administrator be appointed and that Alpha from Lead be the administrator. Mr. Castle and Mrs. Powers didn't trust Mr. Borrick and therefore did not want an administrator appointed and they certainly did not want enough to be appointed. Mr. Borrick wasn't going to budge on his application and he certainly wasn't going to budge on getting Alpha appointed. So Mr. Castle and Mrs. Powers decided to stop fighting against his application and instead focus their energy on seeking their own tenders. And so we sought various tenders from other managers as they wanted the managers, but the parties could still not agree on who should be appointed. At one of the directions hearing um, that I appeared at, I asked Member Rowland if the tribunal can appoint someone given that the parties could not agree on who should be appointed. And Member Rowland said that the tribunal was not prepared to make a decision on its own accord because it did not want the liability of choosing someone that neither party wanted. At the end of that um, directions hearing, I had a discussion with Mr. Borick's solicitor and um, I confirmed that Mr. Castle and Mrs. Powell would not agree to ALF or anyone from LR Reed. And he agreed that that was the only person that Mr. Borick um, would be submitting. So I asked him if his client would consider Kate from Strata Equity. He thought Kate would be a suitable candidate and said that he would seek instructions. In the meantime, I sought a proposal from Kate and she actually ended up sending me the exact same proposal that she sent to Mr. Borick. In fact, it was addressed to him. So prior to the final hearing, the parties were supposed to submit their tenders for the members' consideration, and we, of course, submitted Kate's tender. Mr. Barrick, however, still submitted Al's tender, knowing that we were never going to agree to it. At the final hearing, Mr. Barrick's counsel submitted that it was always, <coughs> excuse me, that it was always Mr. Barrick's intention to appoint Al from LR Reed, and submitted that the respondents did not make any sensible argument as to why he should not be appointed. They were simply disinclined to agree to the appointment for no reason other than it was Mr. Borick's suggestion. Mr. Cussell's counsel conceded that there was a strong element of distrust which continued to divide the members. And she did not suggest that Alarid was in any way disqualified from fulfilling the role, but suggested that perceptions were important in terms of rebuilding trust between the lot owners. Member Usher found that the parties agreed that both suggestions had similar qualifications and experience and noted that Kate's management fee was a little bit more competitive. So he therefore ordered Kate to be appointed in accordance with her tender. Uh, I will now hand over to Sam Merrilies who will take you through the relevant provisions of the Act once an order has been made. Thanks very much. Hi everyone and thanks for that Deb. Um, so as Deb said, my name's Sam and I'm a lawyer in our litigation consultancy IP and OC law teams. Um, 
Today I'll be here to discuss the powers and responsibilities of administrators as well as their remuneration and uh, their requirement to act in good faith pursuant to the Act. In doing so, I'm going to speak about the legal side of things and give some case examples um, of the legislative, legis legislative provisions in action, while Shane will give his take from the perspective of an administrator and provide some more stories. So, first of all, Section 176 of the Act provides that an administrator must lodge with the registrar a copy of the order of appointment without delay, must proceed to may proceed to alter a plan relating to land affected by the OC pursuant to Section 32 of the Subdivision Act only in accordance with an order of VCAT or a court, may do anything that an OC or committee can do subject to an order of VCAT or the court, and may delegate in writing any power of an OC or the committee. In practice, what this uh, section essentially provides for is that where a VCAT audit gives an administrator the ability to do anything the OC or committee can do, it's likely that the very issue that caused the OC to be dysfunctional in the first place will be resolved uh, by the appointment of the administrator. By way of example, in the matter of May and Owners Corporation, VCAT was required to intervene in an Owners Corporation where the original builder retained three of the nine lots and the OC could not pass the necessary special resolution to bring an action for building defects. An administrator was appointed and an application for building defects was then filed. The administrator exercised her power to raise a special levy of $25,000 pursuant to Section 24 of the Act to pay for lawyers' fees and building consultants in that proceeding on the basis that each lot owner was levied in accordance with their lot liability. The administrator subsequently sent fee notices to each lot requiring payment of the special levy in accordance with their lot liability. The builder lot owner received uh, one of those fee notices for each of her three lots and made payments of each notice. However, she had not intended to pay the special levy. Instead, she had intended to pay the regular, the regular quarterly levies which had been struck on the lots, but she did not flag with the administrator how the payments were to be apportioned. The administrator apportioned the payments towards the oldest outstanding debt uh, for each lot, which was the special levy, um, which rendered the accounts overdue in respect of the quarterly levies. The builder lot owner then filed three separate proceedings on behalf of each of her lots to seek restitution of the funds paid by mistake. In doing so, she maintained that she was not liable to pay the special levy because the special levy was for extraordinary items of expenditure relating to repairs, maintenance or other works and was only for the benefit of the other six lot owners and not her. Therefore, the builder lot owner contended that pursuant to section 24.2a that the special levy needed to be levied on the basis that the lot owners who benefit more should pay more. The tribunal found in favour of the OC, however, as an earlier order of VCAT provided that remuneration and expenses of the administrator were payable in accordance with lot liabilities. Therefore, by virtue of section 176C of the Act, which says that an administrator can do anything that an OC can subject to any order of VCAT, the tribunal found that there was no legal error in the making of the special resolution, there was no justification in declaring it void, and no legal error in striking the levy in accordance with lot liability. Now, section 175 of the Act deals with remuneration, and it provides that lot owners must pay the remuneration and expenses of an administrator in accordance with their lot liabilities, as we've just seen, or in an order or sorry, if an order provides some other way, i.e., in accordance with the benefit principle, then in accordance with that order. 
In the matter of Ryan and Barham Storage, Barham Storage, who was the manager of the owners' corporation, went into liquidation. The applicants, who were all lot owners, originally filed the proceeding against the manager to one, seek the removal of the manager, and then two, for the appointment of an administrator because the manager was denying the applicants access to the OC's books and records. As the manager had already gone into liquidation, the part of the application to remove the manager went away and the tribunal was only required to deal with the application uh, to appoint the administrator. The tribunal made an order appointing the administrator but did not make a decision about costs, reserving its decision and directing the parties to provide written submissions on that question. In their submissions, the applicants sought an order that the OC either, either pay their costs on an indemnity basis or a party-party basis. On the other hand, the former manager and the OC submitted that there should be no order as to costs so that the applicants would bear the cost of the proceeding. In making its decision, the tribunal referred to section 109 of the VCAT Act, which provides that the default position in the jurisdiction is that parties should bear their own costs. However, the tribunal is empowered to make any orders as to costs, so long as the tribunal is satisfied that it is fair to do so, having regard to various factors, factors uh, in that section. The tribunal held that the OC's manager was rendered incapable of acting as a manager once it went into liquidation. Uh, therefore, all lot owners benefited from the appointment of the administrator. The tribunal uh, in this regard referred to section 175 of the Act and found that the rationale for this section must be that in most instances, all lot owners benefit from the appointment of an administrator and so they ought to bear the remuneration and expenses. Consequently, uh, in the tribunal's opinion, the same rationale applied to the issue of how costs of the appointment of the administrator should be provided for. This interpretation uh, of section 175 was also reiterated in the matter of Clark and Owners Corporation, Rubicon Valley, where the tribunal observed that the rationale for section 175 appeared to be that ordinarily all lot owners gain from the benefit of the appointment of an administrator, therefore they should share the cost of the uh, provision of such a benefit. Now, lastly, I will be talking about uh, the requirement of good faith. Section 177 of the Act provides that an administrator in carrying out any functions and powers conferred on them uh, pursuant to the Act or the Subdivision Act must, in, in doing so, they must act honestly and in good faith and must exercise due care and diligence. In the matter of uh, Gleeson and Adams, BCAT had previously appointed Stuart Mallington as the administrator of the OC in an earlier proceeding. The tribunal sought to reappoint Mr. Mallington in the current proceeding and Miss Adams, the applicant, raised one matter which, which she considered uh, to be important. In the previous proceeding, the tribunal ordered that if Mr. Mallington were to make any decision requiring the expenditure of more than $2,000, he should not make that expenditure without first giving each lot owner at least seven days notice in writing of his decision. Miss Adams alleged that Mr. Mallington failed to comply with that order as he had spent sums of more than $2,000 from the OC's funds without giving any notice beforehand to her. She produced statements of account, uh, which had been prepared by Mr. Mallington, which showed that in 2012, he'd paid sums of more than $2,000 at any one time to the OC's solicitors. In response, Mr. Mallington gave evidence that the payments to the lawyers were for several bills of costs, which he paid at once. However, at the time, he could not swear that it that uh, each bill of costs was for less than $2,000. The tribunal was left with the impression that uh, 
Miss Adams may well have had a point and there was some substance to her allegations. However, notwithstanding that, the tribunal found that, it, that that in itself did not justify a conclusion that Mr Mallington had breached his duties uh, as administrator or was not a fit and proper person to be appointed again uh, as an administrator of an OC. So therefore, you, you can sort of see there that um, there, there are requirements there, but there is certainly some flexibility. So essentially that's it from me. Um, I'll now hand over to, Sh uh, to Shane from Rogers Ready to discuss um, dysfunctional owners corporations from the perspective of an administrator. Thank you very much, Sam and Deb. And thank you all for the chance to uh, discuss this issue with you today. Um, I thought I'd first talk about the roles of an administrator under the maybe more traditional sense as uh, defined in the Corporations Act. Um, I'm a registered liquidator, uh, director of Rogers Reed, and I'm normally appointed liquidators, administrators of corporations. And the, uh, the outcome of an administration under the Corporations Act is usually we take control when it's in financial distress and we try, aim to give it the best chances of coming out of that distress, whether it's via a restructure, um, making some decisions that are for the benefit of all of the creditors, the people who owe money by, by the corporation. Usually that means getting across all of the issues and circumstances very quickly and making um, some decisions um, that after weighing up all of the circumstances um, are in the best interests of those persons affected. So when you use the term administrator under the uh, Owners Corporations Act, it, it's, it's really to solve a problem um, that has arisen from the dysfunctional OC, but acting in a similar purpose for the benefit of all the owners of that owners corporation, looking to solve a specific problem or an issue. Now, we're bound by the orders that are made under the VCAT of the court, and as we heard from some of those cases mentioned earlier by Deb and Sam, um, those issues can be varying, wide-ranged. Uh, we've seen things where there's been deadlock by a majority owner and not allowing certain other decisions to be passed, allegations of misappropriation or, or fraud in terms of the use of the OC monies, um, and, and we act in accordance with those orders and, and have a level of oversight by VCAT and, and the court as well. We have to report back to them and they scrutinise our actions as well. Um, if there's any doubt, we report back with our uh, brief or report on the circumstances and give our recommendation and, and then the next steps are usually dealt with by further orders. Um, so we have, we have that skill set as, as Corporations Act defined administrators, dealing with conflict, um, people in those sorts of situations, especially with our forward division and forensics division, investigating misappropriation of funds where it may not be appropriate for, for a manager or the committee to, to stay in place with those powers while, while that's happening. Um, slide. So the, the circumstances, as mentioned, the cases can be varying. Um, we've had matters of, of self-interest and conflicts, um, as, as I mentioned before earlier. Breakdown of governance, where it might be the whole committee needs to be replaced. We put in place a new committee. Um, typically, again, the circumstances have to warrant it, but it needs to be larger OCs where you don't have those um, smaller buildings that where the majority owner is always going to have the majority. Um, of the votes on the committee. Um, but with an overriding purpose, we're not, we're not OC managers. We, we leave the running and day-to-day -day administration of the OC to the experts. We, we don't want those additional headaches. Um, we're not in any way OC managing experts. So we can delegate 
those powers and continue those arrangements as well after we're appointed to make sure, as far as possible, the status quo remains where that is appropriate. Um, assuming there's been no allegations or shots fired at the OC manager, which can happen from time to time. Um, so what, what are our powers? Um, Sam went through some of those earlier, but specifically, we basically can have the same powers that a committee has. But, and similar with the Corporations Act, once we're appointed, the powers of the director cease under a corporation. So the powers of the committee cease. Um, we, we take over and make those decisions under the OC Act. We have additional powers um, under the VCAT orders or court orders that are specific to the problem at hand that's, that's trying to be dealt with as well. Um, but we take control. Um, we can pass resolutions. We can change the committee. Um, as I said earlier, we report back to VCAT for further orders if needed. We, VCAT normally places a, a cap on um, levies that can be made outside the ordinary course, but we can have those usual powers to um, force levies as well and, and collect those um, in order to solve the problem that we have. We can delegate to other agents, we can engage lawyers, um, so the usual powers of, of the committee there. Um, some, some additional powers under the OC Act that we, we can actually alter a plan of land affecting an owner's corporation as well to determine any disputes that uh, arise from that. You would normally go back to VCAT for orders confirming that. So what you don't want to happen is if you're changing a committee, make passing resolutions, uh, making decisions, and then we're out to resign, the first thing that happens is the committee is reformed or those decisions are overturned. So you normally have a binding order that protects the validity of the actions that have occurred along the way. Um, of course, we can also, where there is a smaller OC, we can go back and seek further orders to have the committee itself replaced if we don't have the power to do that under the general uh, OC rules, the management rules. Um, I've, we've been engaged several times to go in and investigate, rather than being formally appointed as administrators, to go in and do an investigation into loss quantification, um, allegations that have been raised, which also helps to minimise costs of having a formal administrator appointed under the uh, VCAP orders. Because again, as mentioned earlier, it's, it's, those costs are shared by the owners and depending on how long it goes for and the complexity of the issues, those costs can mount very quickly. So if our role is to deal with some discrete issues, report back, and then the committee makes their decision based on those outcomes, it's a lot more effective and, and cheaper and efficient process for the owners. Um, so I had from a, a practical point of view. Um, happy to field questions, I believe. Or, no, sorry. Do we have <coughs> I'll hand over back to Paolo. All right, well, thank you very much for um, joining us uh, this afternoon. Um, thanks very much to Deb, Sam, and in particular, um, Shane for coming in and uh, joining us in this talk. Um, as you know, we're trying to do these uh, more regularly. We already have our next seminar being worked on at the moment, which is amending plans or the subdivision. Um, that's going to take place on the 5th of May and will be a breakfast, all things being equal. Um, it'll be hosted here, um, but we'll also have a live stream for those of you that can't make it. Um, if you've got any um, questions, um, comments, 
ideas of a session you might like to hear, please do feel free to reach out to um, myself, Deb, Sam, um, and of course I know Shane um, will be more than happy to take any calls if anyone has any questions of him. So thank you very um, much for joining us and uh, we'll see you next time.